Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Artifact Uprising, making premium photo books, frames, calendars, and more. Use code STORY at ArtifactUprising.com for 15% off meaningful photo gifts this season. This week, as people all over the country are coming together for Thanksgiving, we're going to take a break from difficult conversations, knowing you might have enough of those on your holiday plate already, and bring you something a little different. A few years ago, StoryCorps started a national effort called The Great Thanksgiving Listen where young people, and people of all ages really, are encouraged to spend the day after Thanksgiving recording an interview with an elder using the free StoryCorps app. Is there anything you want to tell me that you've never told me before? Grandpa. How would you like to be remembered? It's the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm your host, Jasmine Morris, and in this week's episode, an excerpt from The Great Listen from NPR and StoryCorps, our new one-hour broadcast special, hosted by NPR's Audie Cornish. Here she is, speaking with our founder, Dave Isay. Back in 2014, a million-dollar TED Prize enabled Dave Isay to create a smartphone app so that anyone, anywhere, could record and upload their story. When you open the app, right? Like, after you guys launched it and you're opening it to see if anybody has actually used it, what did you find? The next day, I was in a car, and it was the first time I had to think. And I opened up the app, and here I saw these interviews, like, popping on, popping on, popping on. And I started listening. And it was, um, I mean, they were, like, from small towns in Texas and Tennessee. I want to break it down a little bit. So locations. Yeah. What were you hearing? So you could hear people would be around a dinner table, or you could hear, you know, birds chirping. Thirteen children in the family. You know, so these were people doing it, you know, some people were doing it at school. Um, You could hear lockers shutting. This is Jacob Atfield. I'm being interviewed by Seth Wanneman right now, 7th period choir room, Weissman High School, Memphis. But it it was less the background noise than just the fact that people who had no idea what StoryCorps was were just picking up the app and asking the right questions, and it was happening. One thing about doing something like an app is you are inviting a younger generation into the conversation. And so what do they say? Like once invited to the party, you know, how, yeah. how do they contribute? And in and, and what ways that surprise you? Somehow, something about the app or whatever they've heard about StoryCorps or whatever their teachers told them helped them to understand that this is something that's permanent and not going to go away and they treat it that way. Okay. So what advice do you have for juniors and also just high schoolers in general and young adults? This is actually going to sound really cliche, but I would say to always trust your gut and to follow your heart because I find that that was the only way I would actually be happy even though there were other options that sounded like a better idea. I think I probably just pushed myself too far in high school and stressed myself out way too much and in the end it wasn't beneficial in the slightest. I think we can all learn something from that. 
But the StoryCorps app doesn't just facilitate conversations between peers. It extends listening across generations to people who aren't even around yet. That was, you know, key from the beginning of StoryCorps. And and everybody who does it does it for that archival piece of it. To be part of the record. To be part of the record. Interesting. Um, Is there a generation that, right, if you're into Snapchat or Instagram stories or something, you are used to a communication that is ethereal and that is going to poof. That's right. You said life was challenging growing up. Would you mind sharing a little bit of how was it challenging? Like, for instance, Thanksgiving to me was just being thankful to be together as a family. We didn't have the turkey, the dress, and all of that. I had to work. So, therefore, I was out there selling soda bottles. And if you turned those in, you got five cents a bottle. I had plenty of those, so... Me and my grandmother and grandfather could just have a meal for the day. All right. So can you share one of the happiest memories that you have experienced in your lifetime? One of the happiest experiences that I have spent in my lifetime is when you were born. Because I've always wished for someone to love unconditionally. And then I was, God give me you. And I strive to work hard and make it uh, set examples for you. I was also grateful to accomplish dreams that nobody believed in me. I was told I'd be nothing. I was told I, I wouldn't amount to anything. But I don't have not one degree, but I have two degrees. So um, just always set goals for yourself. Strive to be the best. Don't be mediocre. Well, I think that... You've already done that to me because I'm the best child that you could ever imagine having. (laughs) You know that's true. Yeah. All right. That's the interview for today. Thank you. Thank you. That's Addison Daniels speaking with his mom, Leslie Daniel, with the StoryCorps app in 2015. We've been hearing this hour about the transformative power of listening that StoryCorps has introduced through its booths and now the StoryCorps app. It allows one generation to listen to another. And, you know, just as powerful is the act of expressing emotion. That gift of expression was critical in April 2015. That's when the city of Baltimore exploded in riots and unrest following the death of Freddie Gray, who had been in police custody. Baltimore is burning after a day of looting and rioters clashing violently with police. Tonight, a community center in flames lights up the city as police and community activists try and take back the streets. In my neighborhood. Lost to chaos earlier today. At the time, Dr. Carla Hayden was the head of Baltimore's Enoch Pratt Free Library was a crucial time in Baltimore during the unrest after the death of Freddie Gray. And the community really needed and welcomed the opportunity to tell stories. So Hayden reached out to StoryCorps and asked them to bring their mobile recording booth to Enoch Pratt. She wanted to capture the voices and the stories of the community. The place is crawling with media in that moment, right? But there's the a difference was between crawling. that and being heard. With media, however, the library was directly across from the pharmacy that was broadcast 
and vividly with this the is burning the car, on fire. all of that. The public library, it was such a vital part of that community, it was directly across the street. And so the community protected that library as well as saw it as a sanctuary and a place to go. I saw it in action, boots on the ground, literally. What do you think caused the riots? I think a lot of people were frustrated and just really burnt out. And, you know, if you keep talking and talking and nobody's listening to you, nobody's hearing you, no one's paying attention to you. Don't you understand, man? I'm hungry. I said I want a job. And I think that's the kind of frustration people feel, and they just explode. You said cathartic. How did you know that? I mean, what, what was it that you saw or maybe you heard specific stories? There were specific stories that I had a chance to listen to. What I observed was seeing people after the interviews. They lingered in the library. So you could tell that it helped people. The library was a safe place and the thought that StoryCorps was the outlet for them to talk. I made it to the Eyewitness News and I said my exact statement was, they asked me what is going on, and it was the CNN guy, and I told him, sir, it's not about this moment, it's about something that has been built up for 20 years that just keep building up and building up. That day of the 27th, believe me, if any person wanted to find out the ills of my city or how to correct my city, everybody, I mean, from the kids all the way to the adults was screaming their dissatisfactions of the city out. Everybody could, you know, hear that if you were listening, looking, you were learned. Look, so it's complex when you look at all of these things. And what we, we want people to see is that don't look at just the media, what you saw on TV. You saw the riot, you saw the people looting, but you have to look deeper to understand the problems and also the solutions and see the character of the city. Because the days after that, you saw people cleaning up. You saw people cared about their town and their city and we have to keep that um, mindset and we have to keep people positive and working towards um, a positive change. That's what the work is for. With that, I see a question that floats around the city and they says, what keep you in your neighborhood? I say to my friends a lot of times, I said there's two things that we need to decide. Are we going to have a neighborhood or are we going to have a community? A neighborhood and a community are two different things like hmm. night and day because hmm. I'm noticing that communities are being turned to neighborhoods slash war zones because before it's the police before it's even city hall what are we doing that's the real key we got an obligation to go back to be community citizens and and and, and do what we do as Baltimoreans as one whole not east Baltimore not west but that's what got us here I am Baltimore 41 years I can't go nowhere else and be that. And that's why I'll end that. Remove the self-inflicted nonsense and us continue to look into that mirror. And I guarantee you there's no way change won't come. Do you think that there is hope for Baltimore to change for the better? Of course. As long as there's life, there's hope. There's always hope. So as long as you ain't six feet under, there is hope. And since I bug you all the time, my dear brother, 
I thank you for this interview. You're welcome. Thank you for <laughs> taking time to talk to me. And uh, maybe we can do this again sometime on something else. <laughs> uh, thank you. This concludes the interview with Wilbur and Clarice McBride at the Enoch Prep Library Story Corps. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, uh, good night. <laughs> For the complete collection of StoryCorps at the Enoch Pratt Library in Baltimore, head over to storycorps.org. In 2016, Dr. Carla Hayden moved from the Enoch Pratt Library to the Library of Congress when President Obama appointed her Librarian of Congress. Dr. Hayden was the first woman to take the job and the first person of color. She also took on the responsibility of overseeing the StoryCorps archives, one of the largest collections of human voices ever recorded that anyone can access. They can access it physically in the Thomas Jefferson Building in Washington, D.C. So that's possible as well. You can walk into the Library of Congress and yes. say, point me to StoryCorps. And <laughs> there's some place to go. <laughs> there is an actual physical location in the Thomas Jefferson Building in Washington, D.C. How do these essentially personal stories, right, sometimes family stories, fit into the larger historical context? Meaning, like, can they teach us anything about a certain cultural moment or, or an event? Personal stories can give context and depth to a sentence like... There were internment camps during World War II for Japanese citizens. Now, when you have the person, the grandfather that's still living, talk about, describe the housing, describe what it felt to stand in a line to wait, those are things that just that sentence of fact doesn't give you the full sense of what it actually felt like. A sheriff and two plainclothesmen barged into the house and searched for what they called contrabands. They took out my brother's box camera, my father's shortwave radio, and they took the ax to it and chopped everything up. My father never protested, never said a word. He just stood there. And one night, Vigilante groups formed in town. We saw the men were holding the oil torches coming across to where we lived. They were going to burn down everything. The state patrol came roaring in and told us quickly to gather up what we can in pillowcases and whatever can fit into the trunk of the car. I remember my sister Kathy, my sister Mary, and my brother Bill and I the four of us were squeezed into the back seat of the sedan, and we left in the darkness of the night. We were all crying. We couldn't stop. It was just terrifying. And some months later, we were put into camps. Do you remember those times? I do remember getting on these Army trucks. I was probably five or six years old. I thought I was going on a vacation. What do you expect that future generations could do with these kinds of recordings? I think, especially young people now, they're listening to podcasts. They're listening quite a bit uh, to audio. And I think it gives them another way to experience history. 
everyone can't write a novel or write a memoir, but they can tell a story. Now, the StoryCorps archive that Dr. Carla Hayden oversees is growing by the day. And now it contains nearly a quarter of a million stories. It almost seems if you stitch each story together, you could assemble a patchwork of our history as a nation. I asked Dave Isay if there's ever a moment when he felt like they've actually uncovered a corner of history, something no one expected. I think that happens all the time. You know, Studs Terkel, the great oral historian who cut the ribbon on our first booth, was, you know, a big proponent of bottom-up history, history through the voices and stories of everyday people. That is what we're capturing. And each one is just a little kind of point on a painting. Um, and when you put them all together, it becomes this really living sense of what it was like to be at different historical moments. I was just in an event playing a story of the um, guy who was the busboy who um, cradled RFK's head after he was murdered, who came to StoryCorps a couple months before he himself died, um, telling the story of, of what it was like to, um, to be there. Here's Juan Romero. He remembers bringing food to Senator Kennedy's room the day before the assassination. They opened the door, and the senator was talking on the phone. He put on the phone and says, come on in, boys. You could tell when he was looking at you that he's not looking through you. He's taking you into account. And I remember walking out of there like I was 10 feet tall. The next day, he had his victory speech. So they came down the service elevator, which is behind the kitchen. I remember extending my hand as far as I could. And then I remember him shaking my hand. And as he let go, somebody shot him. I kneeled down to him and put my hand between the cold concrete and his head just to make him comfortable. I could see his lips moving, so I put my ear next to his lips and I heard him say, is everybody okay? I said, yes, everybody's okay. I could feel a steady stream of blood coming through my fingers. I had a rosary in my shirt pocket and I took it out thinking that he would need it a lot more than me. I wrapped around his right hand and then they wheeled him away. The next day, I decided to go to school. I didn't want to think about it. But this woman was reading the newspaper, and you can see my picture in there with the senator on the floor. She turned around and showed me the picture and says, this is you, isn't it? And uh, I remember looking at my hands, and there was dry blood in between my nails. Then I received bags of letters addressed to the busboy. There was a couple of angry letters. One of them even went as far as to say that if he hadn't stopped to shake your hand, the senator would have been alive. So I should be ashamed of myself for being so selfish. It's been a long 50 years, and I still get emotional. Uh, tears come out. But I went to visit his grave in 2010. I felt like I needed to ask Kennedy to forgive me for not being able to stop those bullets from harming him. And I felt like, you know, it would be a, a sign of respect to buy a suit. I never owned a suit in my life. And so when I wore the suit and I stood in front of his grave, I felt a, a little bit like the first day that I, that I met him. I felt important. 
I felt American, and I felt good. We'll be right back with more from Audie Cornish and Dave Isay after this short break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor StoryPoint Vineyards, maker of StoryPoint, a new wine brand who believes in the power of stories told from different perspectives. StoryPoint applies the art of storytelling to their winemaking by sourcing grapes from a diverse range of California vineyards. The result is complex, layered wines that are critically acclaimed by both wine enthusiast and wine spectator. As a special offer to NPR listeners, shipping is included in your online order. Visit storypointvineyards.com story to purchase. We all view love through the prism of our own experiences, right? But how much control do we actually have falling into and out of love? We are playing with one of the most powerful brain systems that ever evolved. I mean, this is a survival mechanism, and I'm not surprised that people suffer in love. Ideas around love, next time on the TED Radio Hour. From NPR. This is Audie Cornish, and I'm talking with Dave Isay for the Great Listen from NPR and StoryCorps. Now, Isay is quick to admit that the StoryCorps app has given us many stories of what he calls bottom-up history, including accounts of what it's like to come to America. Yeah, I mean, I think that. So oftentimes there are folks, when they hear about the app, who it's very important for them to participate and to leave this record and to become part of this, you know, American archive. Grandpa, tell me about your parents. My parents were both from the Philippines. My dad was a young boy of 18. He immigrated to the United States, came over by ship in the steerage, Can you tell me the story of how and why you came to America? When I was young, everybody used to tell me about America. America is like this, America is like that. So from my childhood, it was my dream to come to America. So from Bombay, India, I came to Chicago. I'd never seen snow in my life. (laughs) Like, it was so amazing. when you. I just wanted... To live, as they would say, the American dream. I wanted to have the house with the white picket fence. So how is your real life, your reality, different from this American dream that you had thought of? Well, I am living the American dream. next story, Blanca Alvarez is interviewed by her daughter, Connie, about how she made her way to the U.S. from Mexico. We were walking and walking through the mountains. In the desert? Uh-huh. And um, the man, he told us to take our shoes off because it was a lot of rocks. And he said, I don't want no noise because the dogs are very, very good to detect every noise. Oh. 
And he said, I'm going to whistle and you're going to duck. And it was a point where he whistled. You know, we went on, on our stomachs and we stayed there. Oh, my God, I can see ants, <laughs> big ants crawling. And I was so scared. And, and he said, when the Border Patrol changed shifts, yes, you know, you're going to run. Mm-hmm. I remember it was a torture in those rocks without shoes. So I, we ran as fast as we could. And then he said, you're going to walk through that bridge. I'm going to walk behind you and you're going to give me the money there. And then from there, you're on your own. What uh, what kinds of jobs did you have since first arriving in the country? We were gardeners, and we were cleaning offices. I remember the offices. You remember that? <laughs> we had the n- night shift cleaning. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, we had to take you, you and your brother. <laughs> I didn't have a babysitter. I have memories of running into everyone's office and eating candy from their candy dishes. Mm-hmm. I remember being with my brother in our pajamas with the little plastic right. feet. <laughs> and I also remember you would always buy us a cup of noodle from the vending machine, right? right. like a, a snack, and then, and then put us to bed on s- people's office couches. And then you'd carry us to the car when you guys were done cleaning the offices. Right. I remember that. Did they ever know? Did your bosses ever know that you, you took your kids? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that you've never told me but want to tell me now? When we first came here, we went through a lot of things like not eating. Mm. I guess for six months, your father lost his job, and mm-hmm. but we never told you that. Um if you could do everything again, would you raise me differently? I would dedicate more time, I guess. You know, I was so busy doing, going to school, too, that I guess I neglected you a little bit. No, for me, watching you go to school with two kids and trying to make ends meet, that was the biggest inspiration for me to finish college. I thought, there's, there's nothing that could stand in my way that didn't stand in yours more, so... It's the most important thing for me, uh, having gone to college, and I feel like anything I do from here on out is okay because I've already achieved my dream. Everything else is icing on the cake. What's the one thing you'd say you have learned since the beginning of The Great Listen? Well, one thing I've learned is that um, kids wait until Sunday night to do their homework. <laughs> Universal. Yeah. They all, all of our great lesson stories come in on, on Sunday night of, um, of Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> it's not much, not much happens before That's then. That's great. But um, the stories that come in through the great lesson aren't that different than the, than the stories that come in through StoryCorps in general. And uh, they make me hopeful. And um, they make me, you know, really remember the, you know, the truth that, you know, all of our lives matter equally and infinitely and, all, and how much of all of our stories matter and how important it is to people to be listened to. Well, I think the thing I've learned from your project that I've appreciated is that people are inclined to listen. All this time we thought maybe they're just, we're all sick of listening or yeah. maybe we don't do it anymore. Or maybe there's something about the culture and the environment and blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as we said, hey, why don't you sit down and listen yeah. to each other? People said, okay. Yeah. And even, and also on the, on the other side that, 
you know, how important it is for people to, to feel heard, you know, just to be asked these questions. And it's almost guaranteed that you that someone in your future, that your kids, 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 kid is going to listen to that interview. And it's a it's an opportunity to pass on what you've known to someone who you'll never know, but who you, you know, obviously wish so much for. It's really surprising the amount of life lessons you can learn if you have the right teacher. My grandmother, she used to tell me that the sky was black velvet and the stars were holes that had been punched in the ceiling of heaven. And that was how our loved ones looked down at us and saw if we were doing wrong or if we were doing right or just check in on us every so often. So every time I look up at the sky, she's there. Grandpa, how would you like to be remembered? Remember? <laughs> Do you want to be remembered as like a real tough guy or? Yeah, I was a pretty soft guy. When you I, intimidated when me super... when I was little. <laughs> I did. Yeah, <laughs> you did. Are you happy about the life you've lived? Oh yeah. It wasn't the easiest life back in them days. Mother died when I was four, and it was a tough life. As people age, do you have any advice for them about getting older? It's coming. (laughs) Don't fight it. Just roll with it. I mean, real life. Live it. It's wonderful. (laughs) Thank you, Grandpa. Do you remember what was going through your head when you first saw me? I remember when the doctor pulled you out, the first thing I thought was that he was being too rough with you. And he actually held you like a little Sprite bottle, and he was like, here's your baby. That was the most proud moment of my life. Don't tell your brothers, because it's three of y'all. But it was like looking at a blank canvas and just imagining what you want their painting to look like at the end, but also knowing you can't control the paint strokes. You know, the fear was just, I got to bring up a black boy in Mississippi, which is a tough place to bring up kids, period. But there are statistics that say black boys born after the year 2002 have a one in three chance of going to prison. And all three of my sons were born after the year 2002. So, Dad, why do you take me to protest so much? (laughs) I think I take you for a bunch of reasons. One is that I want you to see what it looks like when people come together, but also that you understand that it's not just about people that are familiar to you, but it's about everybody. Did you know the work that Martin Luther King was doing was for everybody and it wasn't just for black people? Yes, I understand that. Yeah. So that's how you got to think. If you decide that you want to be a cab driver, then you got to be the most impactful cab driver that you can possibly be. Are you proud of me? Of course. You my man. I, I just love everything about you, period. The thing I love about you, you never give up on me. That's one of the things I will always remember by my dad. Uh, You said it like I'm on the way out of here or like I'm already gone. So, Dad, what are your dreams for me? My dream is for you to live out your dreams. It's an old proverb that talks about when children are born, children come out with their fists closed because that's where they keep all their gifts. And as you grow, your hands learn to unfold because you're learning to release your gifts to the world. And so for the rest of your life, I want to see you live with your hands unfolded. 
Is there anything you want to say to future generations? Any wisdom you'd want to share? Show your love to everyone you meet, even if it's just an acquaintance, because the country and everyone needs it. When you go to bed at night, you always give your wife a kiss. That's great. And another one in the morning, and about 12 during the day. <laughs> it is. Grandma just reached her hand over and said, Dale, that's enough. <laughs> I love you. Love Thank you. you so much. We love you, too. I'm Audie Cornish, and this has been The Great Listen from NPR and StoryCorps. listening to an excerpt from our hour-long Great Listen special, hosted by NPR's Audie Cornish. To hear the full version, tune in to your local NPR station. The Great Listen was produced by Carrie Thompson at NPR and Joanna Dufour at StoryCorps, edited by Kara Tallo. Special thanks to Steve Nelson at NPR and Colleen Ross and Dave Isay at StoryCorps. Well, thank you. That was our interview. Thank you for your time, Grandma. You're more than welcome, Miss Romani. I enjoyed the interview and I enjoyed the questions. Thank you. Yes. All right, say anything you want to say? No, there's nothing I want to say. All right, say bye. No, I'm going to say... Say hello. Fog is into hate. Travel in good health. In Yiddish. Yeah, that's Yiddish. We're signing off. Okay, goodbye. Bye. Come back in 20 years. The StoryCorps podcast is produced by Judd S.D. Kendall and edited by me, Jasmine Morris. Jarrett Floyd is our technical director. He also wrote and produced our theme song. Eleanor Vasili is our production assistant. Sylvie Lubau is our scriptwriter. Our intern is Zara Krim. Head over to our website, storycorps.org, to learn more about how to participate in the great Thanksgiving listen. There you can also see original artwork created for this season by artist Lindsay Mound. For the StoryCorps Podcast, I'm Jasmine Morris. Thanks for listening, and Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.